1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, theory. theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharanik Bosu and I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello and welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about the environmental unconscious with Stephen Swarbrick. Before we begin, Stephen, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Stephen
0: Swarbrick. I'm an assistant professor of English at Baruch College, part of the uh, City University of New York. Um, My research focuses primarily on early modern literature uh, psychoanalysis, eco-criticism, critical theory. And I'm the author of a new book, The Environmental Unconscious, from Spencer Milton, which
1: the University of Minnesota Press just released this year. Congratulations on the publication. And I am so excited to ask you my very first question, which is, what the heck is the environmental unconscious?
0: That's a good question. It might be helpful to listeners to begin by defining the unconscious before diving into my term, the environmental unconscious. Since my book is indebted to Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis and Jacques Lacan, the the French psychoanalyst who devotes the better part of the 20th century to rereading and interpreting Freud. I guess the first thing to say is that the unconscious, uh, the definition of the unconscious shifts. Um, So it's not necessarily a stable term, even within Freud's own writing, but I think that an accurate and consistent definition of the unconscious is that it is the system of desires drives and wishes that contradict subvert you could even maybe say militate against our conscious wishes so what psychoanalysis ultimately gives us instead of a a whole subject or a fully integrated subject is a is a split subject instead and The split that I'm referring to is between our object-oriented desires and desires and drives that have no real object. And as you can imagine, this kind of creates a lot of havoc in a wide body of of, of theory that tends to supply an object or at least a goal for the critique. And this is certainly the case within eco-criticism. So my interest in psychoanalysis is that kind of an intervention to show that, by and large, um, eco-criticism really focuses on that one side of the split and tends to ignore the the site of the unconscious that Freud and Lacan really bring to our, has no real object. And I think once we orient ourselves to that split within our subjectivity, forces us to try and kind of invent a new, a new type of eco-criticism. Part of what I've tried to do here is, Bringing psychoanalysis into conversation, both with eco-criticism, but also my home discipline of early modern studies, where I think it's safe to say uh, psychoanalysis has been kind of many kept to the margins of, of early modern scholarship, certainly eco-critical scholarship for for a long time. Kind of what I'm trying to do is thinking about is think about two things: the interrelationship between structures that, if we're thinking about it in a psychoanalytic sense, structures that. Not repeat but throughout time history, so across places, geographies and uh, historical periods. to think about that in relationship to historical particularity, right? So how how can you think about someone like John Milton in the same settings or in the same conversation as as Jacques Lacan? And one of the things that I find kind of animating for this theory is that both Freud and Lacan are really interested in pre-modern thinkers. So one of the touchstones in my book is the ancient poet Lucretius, who was really useful for me in terms of making this leap, just as Freud imagines the psyche is split between these kind of conscious and unconscious desires lucretius gives us a material universe that is likewise split between the kind of yoking together of different uh, materials what he calls atoms um and void on on the other hand now we're not yet at a theory of the unconscious so he's not a fully developed one but it is striking how similar the lucretian concept of the material universe uh which is this kind of self-divided universe Is to one of Lacan's more famous aphorisms about the unconscious, which then it's, which is that it's structured like a language. And one of the kind of things that I find so fascinating about Lucretius is that he he too takes a kind of linguistic or poetic model for thinking about the structure of the material world as this interrelation of of different parts, like uh, letters, the letters of the alphabet, and this surplus or this absence that again he he calls void. and, And so. There are two parts to this question. One, I think that there are these trans-historical structures that I'm right. interested in in locating in different texts, um, but there are also these linkages within the texts themselves that are pointing the way to these, I think, fruitful connections between the literature, the science of, of the times, and
1: Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis how do you u- how do we use the environmental unconscious and or like how do you use it in this book and if you can give us an example of a reading uh from the book the question of use is always a kind of a minefield
0: in psychoanalysis yeah, because it is it is yeah it is, a, yeah. It, it is a, i think it, it is unique among other schools of thought because i think it is primarily useful as a form of disruption to other other theories, uh, other maybe modes of reading, and I turned to psychoanalysis really as a uh, as a way of thinking through, of making sense of my own dissatisfaction with some of the some of the tropes, the habits, the patterns within eco criticism within my own thinking and, and writing. When I, when I first started off, i uh, um, writing this this book in a largely kind of new materialist uh, mode. Uh, for all the reasons that, that you know, we've we've been talking about it. it, it seems like environmental studies and the environmental humanities broadly that it's very good at suggesting to go back to your question, very useful ways of living better. Uh, um, but it doesn't seem to give a very complex account of psyche. And I would even say that the the main thrust of a lot of environmental criticism is is. Um, uh, opposed to a kind of robust thinking about subjectivity or, or or the psyche, insofar as it tends to try and liquidate the subject and make it just one object among countless others. Wow. Um, so, um, so for all these reasons, I, I found it necessary to change my toolkit and look at this um, body of theory, psychoanalysis, that seems utterly kind of incompatible and foreign to the protocols of, of eco-criticism, and maybe, maybe theory broadly. Um, and part of the reason for doing this was that I was interested in poets. So my chapter is focused on Edmund Spencer, who we mentioned before, uh, Walter, Wright, Walter Raleigh, excuse me, Andrew Marvell, and, and John Milton. And I found myself really interested in these poets who did very kind of um wild, to my mind, really interesting accounts of the natural world and our place in it, but don't necessarily fit in with a model that you might find in, I don't know, let's say your average kind of eco-critical study of Shakespeare, where the proposition is that if we turn to Shakespeare's text, it'll show us how to live in better accord with, you know, myriad things, animals, planets, minerals, and so on. But the poets that I was interested in were doing just the opposite. One, they they seem to have really no interest in, in protecting the natural world. They, um, and, and most of their poems are excessive, uh, excessively interested in, in uh, narrative and form, in detailing all the ways that we kind of sabotage our own self-interest. Um, so, um, you know, I think to give uh, one example of this, I, I, focus a great amount of attention, both attention, both in the kind of final chapter of my book and in the conclusion to John Milton's epic paradise Lost, where I think about the, the, the paradox of two identical figures, Adam and Eve, who at least in theory should be the kind of exemplars of, of, of the good life, right? They, they live in paradise. They have everything, um, that, that the garden can afford them and so forth and yet for anyone who's familiar with this poem you know that it 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 details in in great psychological um complexity their dissatisfaction increase and especially um eve's dissatisfaction and by extension adam's dissatisfaction with their relationship so it's it's both a fascinating text for thinking about the complexities of the couple um and it's also um a, a fascinating Text, we're thinking about the the relationship between um, the human subject and and the natural world. And and part of the argument that I, I make there is that one of the things that Milton is chronicling in Paradise Lost is not just the loss of, of Eden, but this much profounder loss, which is this loss of the kind of excess that they're already able to attain in in the garden through their daily labors through all the obstacles that they see as getting in the way of their fuller satisfaction even particular kind of laments having to work so assiduously day after day to maintain the garden kind of grows wantonly and excessively and always undoes their labors and imagines this excess as an obstacle to a happier fuller existence Uh, again which is very kind of strange in this telling of of this retelling of, of the Genesis story, my claim is that um, what they could remain unconscious to is that those obstacles are the very source of their satisfaction. So not only do they end up losing the guardian by the end of the poem, but they also lose that 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 obstacle that seems to both spur their desire with, within the garden, mm-hmm. but. But but you can also see it as as just spurring this ecological excessiveness that that Milton also likes to imagine figuratively throughout that poem too. So I think that's that's one aspect of the environmental conscious that I'm really interested in, and one thing that I think is maybe a, a, a step beyond, or, or at least a departure from a strict Lacanian version of psychoanalysis. Lacan is committed to maintaining this divide between human desires one of the things of the departures that I make from a kind of um, uh, strict Lacanian interpretation is trying to think about the environmental unconscious beyond the strict parameters of, of human desire, in part because I, I think i I tend to be more of a dialectical thinker. So one of the questions that I keep coming up against is, well, I I, I buy the Lacanian interpretation of this slit subject and Thinking about the, the the divide between our unconscious and conscious designers, but but my question is always where does that split come from, and 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 why would it only be the sole, you know, feature of of, of the human subject uh, alone? And so one of the things that I I find fascinating about these poets is that they imagine a a, a an environment that is likewise kind of lacking in some ways, and through their the formal nuance of their poems also represents the natural world in a way that's filled with interesting kind of gaps and fissures and illusions that for me really changes the terrain of eco-criticism changes both the objects of study um right looking for maybe formal features as opposed to having our environmental readings always be so content-based that is pointing to uh, animals and plants that happen to appear in this poem or this film or this novel so it, i think it affords us a more formal analysis and it also i think changes the outcomes of our readings um and, and maybe even also um widens the 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 kind of text that we can look at in doing an environmental analysis like i said the, these poets who i look at um, walter raleigh was uh, involved in and colonialist adventures um, in the Americas, same with Edmund Spencer in, in Ireland. And these are thinkers who I, I don't think have any real interest in preserving the natural world. They are thinkers of conquest. Nonetheless, against their conscious intention, they present uh, 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 subjects in their poems and and give us representations of the natural world that are, are really rich in a, uh, a kind of... Uh, a
1: poetics that seems in tune with what I'm calling the environmental unconscious. So, uh, my final question is how will the environmental unconscious save the world? I think it is maybe the
0: question, uh, especially in the fields that I tend to operate in. So I've been talking about um, the environmental humanities and ecocriticism. Which, and now my sense is that although maybe the, the, the excitement around uh, ecocriticism has maybe died down a little bit, my, my sense is that it's also saturated interest in entanglements or, or the various metaphors of entanglements, meshes and relationality, um, relationalities beyond the human seems such a part of our theoretical vocabulary today. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is resist the reparative mode that might too quickly see these entanglements alone as a solution to our various forms of discontent. I, I think one of the things that I find very honest about Freud's thought is that he doesn't posit a future beyond the split that we've been talking about, the split in human subjectivity and that I'm suggesting we might be able to read broadly throughout the natural world. Instead, he and the Kantu try both in their theory and in their practice as analysts to reconcile us to that split and to develop a, a radical theory and perhaps even a politics on the basis of that split alone. So right. in the in the of unconscious in this book and in, by various writings around this book, and trying to be faithful to that split, which is not to say that I am not interested in saving the world. I just I just am a little bit skeptical and, dare I say, paranoid and suspicious about some of the easy and ready-to-use formulas that are available in critical theory today. All of this is to say that I, I'm not sure that psychoanalysis necessarily gives us a program to act on for saving the world. Obviously, I do think that there are ways of changing our world dramatically that would improve things, but I think Freud's point is that even in a dramatically, even in a fundamentally transformed, maybe even socialist world, we would still be confronting what he calls our ordinary unhappiness. I find that, I find that there's something powerful about that in part because it, it changes the framework for how we do theory, it changes the trajectory of theory. It certainly, I think, forces us to be a little less moralistic about our theories, um, a little less maybe opt about about our theories, but to be a little practical about it. I think there is a way of trying to think about and maybe a practical politics that takes psychoanalysis as its basis. the the politics of, of degrowth, which is a kind sort of a, a point of great interest within environmental studies, especially if you Socialist environmental studies—that um, is, ways of planning the economy to to degrow it—as uh, opposed to the kind of greenwashed capitalist rhetoric that uh, imagines ways of uh, maybe I don't know, creating more solar panels, but nonetheless still growing the capitalist economy. Um, and I've also been interested in this idea of, of divestment of of how to live a life that is interested in that is. That divests from many of the att- attachments that we know are, um, ecocidal and 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 deleterious to our to our coexistence. And one of the things that I find powerful about attuning ourselves, as Freud would have it, to this split, or or maybe trying to keep the unconscious investment in dissatisfaction at the forefront of our minds, as hard as that is is that i think if we start to imagine that the real source of our enjoyment comes from the obstacle or comes from missing the object that we imagine will satisfy us or that we want i think on that basis it it becomes possible to imagine divesting from all the many things that promise to to fulfill us or, or to give us a more satisfying existence i think that applies both to the 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 many promises that we're bombarded by within capitalist society. And as I suggest within my book, it also means we have to divest from some of the promises that we make within theory and eco-criticism as well and to try and live with some of the disappointment and loss that nonetheless we all share according to the psychoanalytic model and that might be the basis for a a truly kind of um, socialist
1: existence. Absolutely. And I'm so excited. to I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm so excited to finish the book, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about the environmental unconscious. Really, really. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about my favorite subject, just theory. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fixed. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonik Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio and Sharonik Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.